lot of the food that we're growing with nitrogen now, it doesn't have those natural nutrients in it. So the food we're growing now might be big, but it's definitely not as healthy. So as the, the crops, the food grows big, it actually invites other problems, diseases, pests, infiltration. And then the farmer needs to use other chemicals to solve those problems. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this week, we welcome Kelly Price, CEO and co-founder at Agreed Earth, a climate tech startup using earth observation data to help farmers reduce reliance on synthetic nitrogen. Nitrogen is a critical element to helping plants grow, yet 50% of the nitrogen used in farming is lost into the air and water. This is a massive problem for our environment and for the farmers because of the cost. Kelly and the team fix this issue on a massive scale and supports farmers moving to more sustainable farming practices in a way that actually makes financial sense to them. One quick point before I pass over to Kelly. If I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Kelly. Well, I am Texan by birth, but British by choice. I've been in the UK for about 14 years now, and I started my career in biology, consulting in East Asia for the pharmaceutical industry but I became more concerned about the health of the planet than its people along the way. And so when I got to the UK, I decided to kind of try to repurpose my background and experience, got my MBA at LBS, and then through various means ended up in a venture builder for the climate crisis called Carbon 13, found my co-founders and then founded Agreed Earth. So yeah, that's how I got here. One of the things I really, I consider myself very fortunate to, to be is I get to spend all of my time speaking to incredibly intelligent people. And it's so exciting to hear these incredibly intelligent people work on the climate crisis. It, it really is a, this big call to action for everyone in society to all really dedicate our attention to trying to work on this, right? Oh, well, absolutely. And first of all, thank you for saying that because I'd love to include myself in that group of people. More importantly, I think I would love to spend all my time recruiting for the climate crisis, because I know when I was working in corporate, I felt like I didn't really enjoy my job. And I thought when I'm, you know, on my deathbed and looking back, I am, if I, this is all I've done with my life, I'm going to be so sad. And I, I suspect there are so many other people out there, creative, amazing, emotionally and intellectually intelligent people who feel similarly, but they just kind of don't know what to do about it. And there's no greater problem than we could all and should all be working on right now than the climate crisis. It needs all of us. So I, if I could just spend my time recruiting for it, I would. And I, I know that Carbon 13 is, is one of the really high profile and high growth venture builders at the minute and, and acceleration platforms, touching on all different types of priorities within the climate crisis. I know that you spend a lot of your time thinking about our impact on the environment. And we, we spoke the other day about planetary boundaries. And I, I thought that was really fascinating. What were your thoughts around that? Yeah, well, thanks. Basically, 
had one of these aha moments because my co-founders and I knew we wanted to work on agriculture with the mission of moving the needle, getting more and more farmers and mass on the sustainable journey. And we knew that there were many problems in agriculture, but my, you know, stop the clock moment was when I saw this graph of the planetary boundaries, where it basically shows a number of different things about the earth, the earth systems, and where kind of the safe zone is, and then where it's just like, red alert, red alert. And the number one red alert that was exceeded the most in the first was of nitrogen. And nitrogen is a crucial input to farming. It's the main you know, form of fertilizer that we use. And so what that means is us just growing our food the way we currently do is absolutely killing the planet because all of this nitrogen is going in all the places it shouldn't go and disrupting all the systems. So it'd be really helpful to maybe just sort of break down exactly the, the role of nitrogen mm-hmm. in, in, in farming because it's used on such mass, but it's also such a problem for the environment. What, how is it used exactly? Yeah, well, plants need nitrogen to grow. That's absolutely true. And most plants, apart from legumes, beans, they can't fix their own nitrogen. It's 70% of, 78% of the atmosphere, but plants can't really fix it themselves. And so they rely on other sources to get that. And it's traditionally been microbes, but at the turn of last century, some scientists figured out a way to basically suck nitrogen from the air, free source, and fix it in a solid form so that we could put it on the fields and grow our food. And this was wildly successful. Like farmers' crops increased in yield and they were very happy. And so we kind of got hooked on the system of sucking it out of the air. But there are a number of problems with that or have led to that planetary boundary excess. The way we fix nitrogen out of the atmosphere is through a process called the Haber-Bosch process, which uses methane, which is a fossil fuel, and a whole lot of energy to suck it out of the air because it's in a very stable form in the air. So you need to use a lot of energy to break those bonds. And so that clearly has a huge carbon footprint right there just to produce it. But the problem is, is that when it goes into solid form, it's actually still quite volatile. In fact, there's a reason that fertilizer is a major component of homemade bomb making, right? It's very volatile. So when farmers place it on the field to grow food, the problem is, is that they lose around 50% of that into the air and the water. And that loss is very, very damaging in the air. It goes up as nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas that's 300 times more potent than CO2. You hear a lot about carbon and carbon dioxide. You don't hear much about nitrous oxide, but it's actually a huge villain in the climate crisis because it's released inevitably as we're growing our food. The other problem is what goes into the water, which is nitrate. And nitrate is a carcinogen, causes cancer. So we definitely don't want to be drinking it. And it's inevitably running off of farmers' fields and leaching into the groundwater. That's a huge problem. And when it gets in the water, it doesn't stop there. It causes huge, it's like fertilizer in the water. So these algal blooms take place and they suck all the oxygen out of the water. And then they kill off the aquatic life. 
And you can see major dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico where the Mississippi River and all draining all that farmland has been emptying out and just creating this ever-growing dead zone of hypoxia because of this. So the, the fertilizer is applied to the crops to help them grow, which then benefits the farmer. But then if some of it is then leaking away, I imagine that carries quite a substantial cost for the farmer in terms of wasted chemicals. Fertilizer, et cetera, is pretty expensive. Yeah, and increasingly so because, as we discussed, it's made from methane, fossil fuel, so it's tied to energy prices. So the past couple of years have seen wildly skyrocketing prices of nitrogen fertilizer. Yeah, that loss is definitely not great for the farmers. They, they know it takes place, but they can't see it really. You know, it's fairly invisible. And what they're keeping track of is their yield. And so if their yield is maybe a little low, that the answer to them is to chuck more on. They know they're going to lose some of it, but that's almost all the more reason they need to put more on so that hopefully some of that will go in the right place. So actually, this, this loss probably drives the over-application of nitrogen. And there's another cost that it drives as well. And that's because synthetic nitrogen fertilizer is actually addictive. It disrupts the natural fertility of the soil. And what I mean by that is, you know, before the Haber-Bosch process, plants grew everywhere. It's not like, you know, we needed nitrogen to just grow plants on earth before. Uh, and the way they got that nitrogen before was through what I call the black market in the soil, which is the exchange that's always taken place between plants and microbes. So you can think of a plant as like a big solar panel factory. So all the leaves are solar panels, you know, catching the sun and carbon dioxide and turning that into sugar, which is an amazing process. And then they take that and they feed it down through their roots into the surrounding soil around their roots where a bunch of microbes are living. And the microbes are attracted by that sugar and very happy to get it. And they in turn release minerals and elements that the plant itself can't just fix and get on its own. So it's this lovely natural exchange that's been happening since time immemorial. And when you place fertilizer on the top above the soil for the plant, it basically tells the plant, oh, you don't need to produce all that sugar to feed your little buddies down there. You don't need that anymore. You can get your, your lunch for free up here. And so it disrupts that market, creates a distortion, as I would say in economic terms, and it kind of dries up and the microbes are no longer there, no longer being fed. And then the soil itself dries up and acidifies and becomes kind of dead and compacted. And then if there's a big rain event, that soil can't really absorb the water anymore. And so there's a lot of runoff and flooding and with it goes some of the topsoil and a lot of the nutrients that have been applied. So I say nitrogen's addictive because once you start using it, you really need to keep using it because you've probably lost a lot of that natural fertility. And I think this is often one of the really overlooked aspects to the environment, being the soil. Mm -hmm. Soil plays such an important role in our natural ecosystem in it terms does. of providing natural resilience to flooding, to supporting agriculture in moments of drought because it will hold water from wetter periods and it will really protect the natural environment. So it really is in our best interests to support the support and nurture healthy soil really around in, in our environment. Yeah. 
I know that one of the big topics, as you as you mentioned at the minute, is the impact of these chemicals on soil, and it really doesn't work in anyone's favour. I imagine it also then impacts the farmer's yield because plants need healthy soil to to grow. Obviously, so we know that chemicals are bad for rivers through runoff, for example. We know that it's bad for the soil. What sort of impacts does this? imbalance have on the actual crop and and its yield? Okay, well, let's take a step back because farmers are incentivized by yield. That's kind of how they measure their ability to profit because most crops are kind of commodities and you just get a fixed price. And so they want to grow as much as they can to get as much money in return. And nitrogen definitely helps you get yields. There's no question. The problem is, is that I liken it to fast food. If you ate burgers every day and fries, you would grow big, but that doesn't mean you would be growing healthily. <laughs> it, you know, and it's it's like that with the nitrogen as well, because the black market used to provide not just nitrogen, but a lot of minerals and things that the plant would take up, and that became nutrients in the plant. And in the absence of that, a lot of the food that we're growing with nitrogen now, it doesn't have that those natural nutrients in it. In fact, there's a really great book called What Your Food Ate by Anne Bickley and David Montgomery that I can highly recommend that really explains this process and the research and science behind it. So the food we're growing now might be big, but it's definitely not as healthy. And then there's another problem with this because you mentioned chemicals. It's not just nitrogen. So as the, the crops, the food grows big and kind of unhealthy, it actually invites other problems, diseases, pests, you know, insects infiltration. And then the farmer needs to use other chemicals to solve those problems. It's kind of like back to the fast food analogy. You know, if you ate a whole bunch of burgers and fries every day, you'd probably start coming down with maybe some diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and then you'd need to start taking medications to deal with those things. And those medications might have side effects and you take something to deal with those side effects, right? So you kind of get on this chemical treadmill and we've very much done the same thing in farming. So it's, it's an entire chemical industry all just built around solving the problems that the, the last solution created. And all of that, of course, as we just said, especially with the soil being kind of dead and compacted, runs off into the water. And we're now in a position where the, the crops being produced have far less nutrients than back in the day. So yeah. these big bushy plants that look great from a yield perspective are really quite scarce when it comes down to to nutrients, which is obviously what we what we need. So it, yeah, it it sounds like a bit of a a bit of a, an all round not so good situation. But you know, that- and it's not just nutrients that you can actually taste the difference. I had this little epiphany because. I you know, was just used to buying store-bought apples. And then I ordered an organic veg and fruit box and I got it. And the apple, I will be honest with you, it looked kind of scary. I was kind of like, okay. And it was little, I was like, mm. and I bit into it. And I was just like, I did not know an apple could taste like this. It was just incredible. And it's not every apple every time or anything like that, but I'm just saying that the food that we get that's mass produced, very standardized in the grocery store these days is just, I think, maybe a shadow of its former self and potential. I completely agree. And I, I've been growing some vegetables in my garden 
and uh, got lettuce, blueberries, courgettes, and a few others. Really, really nice little collection of, of these little dinky vegetables. And it's like a different type of vegetable or fruit. It's, it's amazing. It's just so far removed from the stuff that you'd see in, in Tesco and Sainsbury's. So it really does sort of show the, some of the challenges with having such a major food supply so hooked on pretty strong chemicals. And, and, and standardized as well. You know, everything has to look and be a certain size and shape and all of that. And I think that that's, yeah. Then you kind of really have to grow it the same way with these similar inputs. And yeah. Totally. So, and, and what I'm conscious of also is that these, these are healthy crops are also pretty dependent on, on water. And we now sort of find ourselves in a, a climate where the winters are wetter and the summers are drier. So the variance in weather is just so much more erratic and the water available to these crops is, is becoming a little bit more unreliable. That also then combined with the, the water supplies that we do have in, in rivers, et cetera, is then being impacted by chemical runoff. Could you, could you maybe talk a little bit about the, the role of, of water within this? Because it's, it's obviously such a key part of our environments and our ecosystems but it's becoming so much more unreliable. Yeah. Well, and it is a major driver of what we decided to do as a solution to the problem. So yeah, you were talking about the soil's ability to hold moisture. And yeah, I think the best way to think of the soil is kind of like this sponge that encircles the earth. And, you know, you can wring it out when you need a bit more water, but then it can really absorb a lot more water, you know, and without even needing to grow in size. A lot of that is held because of all these microbes, the life in the soil. So no life in the soil, the sponge kind of just shrivels up and can't really hold the water anymore. And so then in the summer, if there's a heat wave and a drought, like we had last summer, then it has a huge impact on the crops, especially in areas where you don't have irrigation and the water supplies go down anyway. We saw that last summer as well with even towns in England running out of water. And so, yeah, we need to find a way to farm that allows the soil to remain a sponge because we need it ever more, even more than we did before when rainfall was fairly regular and predictable. So the, the environment's becoming a lot more unpredictable and we've then got these almost extraneous variables impacting our environment through chemicals and, and various other demands of the modern world. What can we do about this? Yeah, I, I, I understand. I kind of painted a really bleak picture there. But yeah, don't worry. I didn't come on just to depress everybody because there, there's actually a really great solution that helps improve the issues with water, helps improve the resilience in the face of extreme weather, and actually helps lower the farmer's costs and you know means that we aren't exposed to all of these chemicals as much and can really get more nutrients in our food. And that is to wean ourselves off of synthetic nitrogen, which is, sounds very simple. And actually it can be because the way to do that is to do a number of sustainable practices, basically stacking them in tandem. And those would be things like doing, making sure you're doing crop rotations, not just growing the same two to three crops over and over and over again in the same field so that the soil itself gets fed with a lot of diversity from the plants because 
it, I mean, in nature, you never find a monoculture. Monoculture is completely unique to our modern industrial way of farming, keeping the ground covered all year round so that you've always got living roots holding that soil in and feeding in the carbon into it and feeding in the moisture and, and, and basically nurturing the black market. So a lot of the time, you know, in industrial ag, the fields are just left bare and brown over the winter. Well, that's a huge problem because water, especially if we have these wetter winters, <laughs> comes in in huge amounts in one go and that it can't be absorbed. And so it washes off the topsoil and the chemicals and it com further compacts it with the weight of the rain. And, and so it just kind of is this ever feeding cycle of, of problem. So keeping the ground covered with cover crops in the winter, things like that. And, you know, you can move towards no longer tilling the land, plowing it up so that it all of those networks in the black market can stay intact because plowing can actually really mix everything up and disrupt all those connections that the microbes have made on their own and releasing the carbon into the air and things like that. So there are a number of things that can be done. It's helping farmers get on this journey by making it economically viable for them because right now farmers are doing what's in their economic interest and to them that's maximizing yield and right now especially if your soil is hooked on chemicals the way to maximize yield is to use all the chemicals now that doesn't maximize profit because the chemicals cost a lot but if you're on that treadmill it's really hard to find a way to get off without falling over so i guess the first step is then understanding where these imbalances sit. So understanding where maybe farmers are losing the chemicals, understanding where the, the soil is doing really well. The answer to a lot of environmental and infrastructure related challenges I'm finding is, is data. And yeah. imagine there's a key data element here. Well, absolutely. So our solution the way we decided to approach this is we wanted, as, as I said, to help being sustainable, make economic sense to the farmer. And the way we decided to go about this is building a nitrogen accounting tool. So basically, I mentioned about half of what they apply is lost. And, you know, that's, that's a real shame financially for them and a real shame for the climate and the environment, the air and the water. And so our accounting tool helps shine a light on that because until now it's been a black box we've known it happens but don't really know how much in what form from where so you know how much is going into the air and where is it going from and when is it going out into the air which leads to answering the question why why is it happening because so much of how nitrogen flows through the agricultural system depends on things like the soil type the temperature around the time it was applied, the weather, does it rain, you know, how moist is it, all of those things. And so our tool is able to take satellite data to model out where the nitrogen goes once it's applied, first of all, to help farmers lose less nitrogen so that they can make better application decisions to avoid that loss. And then our ultimate goal is to help them need less nitrogen because they can see how much is remaining in their system so that they don't need to over apply in the next growing season. And I imagine the, the water companies are also big fans of this because one of the big priorities at the minute is trying to support regenerative agriculture practices, sustainable land management practices. 
which then in turn benefits the water supply because less chemicals run off into it. So everyone's a little bit happier. So I imagine you've got those two different types of stakeholders particularly interested. Yeah, it's a really good point because taking a step back, the majority of nitrate going into the water system is coming from agriculture. From the farmer's point of view, losing nitrogen to the water is sad, but it's not really their job to clean it out from the water. That's actually the water company's responsibility. They have a legal requirement to keep the concentration of nitrate below a certain level. And there's two ways that they can do that because what they can't do is go tell the farmer how to farm, right? That's the farmer's job. And and no farmer wants to be told by anyone how they should do their job. So what the water companies do is they can build a nitrate removal plant. These are very specialized plants because it's difficult to get the nitrate out of the water. It's not just like filtering for sewage or other things like that and treating it. So they have to build these plants about 50 million pounds to build, never mind operate, which is, it's very energy intensive. So very expensive to operate. So, you know, no, no company wants to have to do that. So the alternative is to get the concentration down by abstracting and blending, basically pumping water with a much lower nitrate concentration, blending it with the nitratey water, and then getting that concentration down. So diluting it basically. And that has been the preferred method, but as we talked about, weather is increasingly unpredictable and we're getting these dry spells and heat waves. And that means there's just less water full stop making that approach, not just less economically viable, but just less feasible altogether. And so we have the view that the best nitrate removal is actually from the system, not the water. And that starts with the farmer. So our accounting tool actually helps water companies engage with the farmers because it provides a tool for the farmers to see that loss and understand it better and then start making different decisions. So it's not telling the farmer what to do, it's showing the farmer something that they could do that's actually in their economic interests. And I imagine that's quite a, quite a clever approach to take in that you're not telling them how to farm or anything like that, but you're saying, hey, I've got this data, which you might want to check out because it shows <laughs> that you may have some, you may have some areas where you're losing money and it really, really using the data to make it real for them. Right. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Because, you know, as they say in management, what gets measured gets managed, but also what gets measured can be valued. And until now, this hasn't really been valued in this way. It's just been kind of considered a cost of doing business, but we can't keep doing that, not with the planetary boundaries and not with the cost of nitrogen either. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really interested in your approach to, to bringing this to farmers. I imagine that there's a lot of in-person engagement, working closely with these farms and showing them this fascinating technology that you've developed using satellites in space to measure intricate amounts of nitrogen in the, in the soil. It's, it's amazing. What's the typical response when you show them this information? Well, it's really interesting because I think you have to remember farmers are people who, you know, chose their line of work probably because they didn't want to sit, you know, in front of a computer at a desk all day in a cubicle somewhere, you know, they want to be out in their fields. They want to be checking their crops. They, that's, that's what they love and that's why they do what they do. And so we are building something that isn't going to be, you know, something where you have to log in and then input a bunch of data into a very confusing interface, you know, and 
we know farmers have all sorts of digital tools at their disposal. And I was just at a farm yesterday talking to farmers and one of them was saying, I've got so many tools and I don't think any of them make my job easier, you know? And we also know garbage in, garbage out. If a farmer has to input data and they're tired or they can't find it or whatever, you know, you what you get out is only as good as what you put in. And that's why we decided to build a tool that can really remote sense things to absolutely minimize any need for farmer data input. Because like I said, that, that's not what they want to be doing with their days, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. I want to zoom in a little bit. So how does it work exactly? This is metaphorical, but it looks like a triangle. If you think of nitrogen as being applied to a field, there's only three ways it can go. It can go into the ground, can go into the water, or it can go into the air. And so what we said was, right, well, this is finite, so it's knowable. And we can know how much a farmer applied of nitrogen because that is the sort of data that they, they literally go around with in their head. In fact, yesterday we were walking around looking at wheat fields and the farmer's like, yeah, so I applied 50 of you know urea and then 10 of foliar to that field. And then it was only 20 over there. And you know they, they just this is the exact sort of thing they actually keep in their heads. It's a very, very knowable because it's their major cost. And so what we said was, right, if we know how much is applied and we know where it was applied, well, from satellite and from validated models, we know like what the temperature and weather and all of those things were like around that time of application. We know the soil type. We can even get a sense of soil health. And we have validated models for how that nitrogen would react to those conditions. And we have validated this against data from a study that was done over nine years looking at nitrate runoff and leaching in a particular area to prove out that the way we're configuring this actually works and match, matches up to ground truth data and reality. And so it's basically taking all of these validated models and using satellite data to locate it specifically to the place and conditions surrounding the timing of the application. That's absolutely fascinating that you can go to that level of analysis and then process it and then make it so easy to understand. So a farmer can very easily fit it into their day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Well, as one farmer said to me, you know, biology, it's complex, but it's not complicated. You know, where, where, where this goes, there's only three ways. So, so we can figure this out, you know. Absolutely. So much of the UK is, is agricultural land. And you can just really imagine the scale of chemicals running off into our rivers, as well as then being absorbed up into the air. We kind of need a large scale approach to using satellites to ideally do it UK wide. Absolutely. In fact, one of our goals is to really map out for the UK, the nitrate loading from agriculture into the system, because as I was saying, this is very noble. And the other thing we do know is that I believe hundred percent of the waterways in the UK are considered polluted. And a good number of them are considered not even, you know, healthy enough to swim in, right? And this is not the way we want it to be. And there are things we can do about it, but we need a scalable, low-cost approach to starting to figure out the problem and the sources of this issue so that we can then address those sources. There's a little bit of an 80-20 Pareto rule here where 
you know, the vast majority of the nitrate coming into the system is coming from 20% of the, the, the areas, right? So if we identify those areas and really target addressing them first, then we can make massive headway fairly quickly. Absolutely. And it sounds as though with this solution, we can very much try to tackle this challenge. Yeah, definitely. And we're doing it in a way that is not making the farmer a villain. In fact, we're trying to put money back in the farmer's pockets and we're trying to help them not tell them what to do, you know? I, and that's very important because farmers are really squeezed, right? They're takers on input costs and they're takers on price of what they can sell their food for. And it tends to be for every pound that we spend on food as consumers, the farmer is getting about 10 pence of that. And that, that ratio is not getting any better. So to tell a farmer, you need to change your way of farming and you need to implement some practices that will have some upfront costs doing different sustainable practices like intercropping, using two crops at the same time, maybe not tilling your land. Those are practice changes that actually come with associated costs for the farmer to start doing them. It takes time and they may have a drop in yield as they do that. And that means that they've had this upfront cost and a drop in yield. So that's kind of a double financial whammy. And so that's where we want to come in and help make getting on this journey and rehabilitating the soil by using less nitrogen, truly financially, not just viable, but actually attractive to them. You've been listening to Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, Give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.